This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. I'm the editor-in-chief of BNE and Telenews, and I'm joined today again by an old friend and uh, energy expert, Christoph Rulf, who is the former chief economist at BP, and we met first in Moscow in the 90s when he was running the IMF's um, Russia office. Uh, Christoph has been doing this market for about two, maybe three decades, and um, knows it intimately, knows the energy business intimately, uh, knows the people in Russian government, quite a few of them very well as well, and is a highly respected um, commentator and analyst on what's going on in Russia, particularly in the energy market. Christoph, good to see you. Hi, Ben. Yes, likewise. Good afternoon. And uh, I have to correct one thing before they go mad. It's what's the World Bank, not the IMF. Ah, right, sorry. <laughs> and you're in Houston, you're in Houston at the moment, aren't you, at an energy conference? I'm in Houston, it's a huge week-long uh, energy conference called Zero Week. Uh, this time a little bit more, less international, less glamorous, no Russians here. Very right. few Middle Eastern people here. Uh, and of course, you know, pretty much uh, in the throes of what's happening yeah. in the Ukraine. So, why don't we dive straight in? I mean, uh, yesterday yeah. the US, um, they banned Russian oil and um, they've been, Russian oil imports to the US have been rising, but they remain pretty small, don't they? So isn't this just a token, a gesture? In the end it is, yes, because uh, Russia, uh, the US's import and exports are balanced. And this doesn't mean the US doesn't import uh, or doesn't export. In fact, the US is, is the largest exporter of crude oil and products globally but these are gross exports they also mm. import a lot just as much basically so that the net exports are basically zero part of these imports uh, are from the from from russia a very small fraction actually and has already fallen by half in anticipation of trouble uh, and so this is not a very big deal for the global oil market uh, to stomach also, you have to keep in mind when we talk about the oil market, we'll talk about a globally integrated market. So as long as you don't change supply or demand in the aggregate, it just when, when, you, when one country says I'm boycotting Russian oil without having sanctions, broadly speaking, on Russian oil, then what this means is just that the oil which would have gone to that country will find its way somewhere else, say it goes into Asia instead. And that oil from Latin America or Europe goes into that country instead. So it's just an adjustment process. And if these adjustments are not too large, then they can be done relatively quickly and painlessly. And that's the case here. Because the thing with oil is that you put it on a ship, it's easy to move around. And so it's quite easy to rebalance, isn't it? It's true. And this makes a difference from gas. So that gives me a, a, to say something else on background, which is on the, on the gas markets. We have, in fact, much, much steeper increases in gas prices, in particular in Europe. If you wanted to express today's European gas price in, as the equivalent of oil prices, you are above $600 per barrel of oil. That's the equivalent of gas prices have risen. That came about before, a lot, to a large extent, even from the, started before the Ukrainian war, and is to some extent uh, the birth pangs which we are seeing here of a market which is changing, which is globalizing. Gas different from oil, as you said, used to be transmitted by pipelines. So in which case you have one seller and one buyer. 
what an economist calls a bilateral monopoly, no marketplace in between. And yeah. It's different from walking down a street and knowing what an Apple supermarket would be because there are 10 supermarkets. So these kind of prices had to be fixed by negotiation and they were then put into in the form of long-term contracts. Often they just mirrored the oil price. And so this was a stale and boring market for decades. And along comes liquefied natural gas, the possibility of freezing gas, liquefying it, putting it on tankers and shipping it around and changed everything because now all of a sudden you could put a tanker on the ocean and then they would get a call saying that prices in whatever Dublin are now two cents cheaper than Rotterdam and they would redirect the, uh, the tanker. And for that to work, you need short-term contracts, market prices, uh, flexibility. And that has developed uh, very rapidly. In fact, I think 2020 was the year in which for the first time ever, the share of interregional gas exports and imports per tanker was larger than the pipeline exports and imports. Right. And so that you know, caused uh, countries in Asia now to demand more gas, in particular China, caused Europe then when the, and the Russian imports went down to compete with Asia and caused prices to become very high and very volatile even before the Ukrainian trouble started. And okay. it also, this flexibility also helped then Europe to uh, so, you know, bridge, fill, fill the gap when, uh, when Russian pipeline imports seriously slowed down. But that was just a um, so. I want to talk about gas and a lot about gas, um, but let's just finish off the, the oil and, and the, um, what are they, sanctions um, embargo on, on uh, oil deliveries from Russia to, to the States. So it's, it's only about 5% um, of Russia's exports of oil go to the States. And, and it's an even smaller percentage, like 2% of American imports of oil. Is that right? Yeah, it's about in that two between two and three percent. But to really so with, sort of put that, yeah. Yeah, go on. I was going to say to, that's to about put, ten ten billion dollars. I mean, ten billion dollars for the Russians is not that much money. And again, it is not a sanction which diminishes by itself Russia's output. Right? Mm. If only one country says, if country A says, I don't take the oil of country B in a globalized market, then country B sells to C instead, and C sells to D, and D sells back to A. Right. Yeah. So as long as, as there is no closed phalanx of countries which all say we don't we sanction Russia's exports, uh, it is just a matter of redirecting things. That can be very painful and very long-lasting and very expensive if you talk yeah. about big volumes, but in this case it's small. But to really understand what's going on here, I think there's a good story and it steps to step back for a second. It pays to step back. So if we go, if you go back just two weeks, when there was all these discussions about sanctions, which sanctions to impose on Russia, if they would really dare to cross the border, which most of us didn't believe at the time, I think. Uh, the general public discussion was always like a, a discussion about something like a pincer movement, a two-pronged approach. And the idea was to cut Russia loose from the financial sector on one side and to limit its ability to export commodities, including energy, on the other side. And the common target of this pincer movement was Russia's balance of payment surplus. And that mm. persistent balance of payment surplus, which they have for decades, of course, is a big commodity exporter. That was the source of all the wealth which was stored in what was called Fortress Russia at the time. Mm. An enormous amount of reserves, which would, made, would have made it possible for them to withstand sanctions for a long time, and which also would have made it possible for them to live with very low oil prices for a long time. So the calculations, and these are correct numbers, was that uh, Russia could survive with an oil price of $43 for years. Mm. That's how big the reserves were. And 
when you flip that hypothesis or this, this fact, you know, then, then you could equally say if oil prices are much higher, then Russia could have survived with cutting oil exports a little bit, bringing prices even higher, making them go through the roof and inflicting serious economic damage on the Western countries. Right? And I'm sure that was in their mind as well. And I'm sure this was one of the ideas then of freezing Russia's, the, the, the assets of Russia's central bank. And when we talk about <clears throat> sanctions now as they actually happened after the invasion, was very different from the previous discussion because commodity exports and energies were not sanctioned at all. And what was sanctioned instead was the financial sector much harsher than anticipated. Mm. And the biggest and the single most important point here is the freezing of the, of the reserves of Russia's central bank. Which that, came out of left field. I mean, no one, that wasn't talked about. That was a total surprise, wasn't it? Because it had never, it's, a, it's the key to understanding what happened subsequently. And yes, it came as a surprise, including to Russia. And the reason for this is that uh, there are laws and contracts and all of that, and it had never been done before that one country sort of froze the assets of a sizable other country. It had been done before only with Venezuela, North Korea, and temporarily with Iran. Mm -hmm. and, and it was that move which suddenly took away the, it's like taking away the ammunition of famous fortress Russia. So they can't defend the exchange rate anymore. And the key point which follows from that for energy markets is that Russia now is no longer in a position where they could threaten seriously with limiting the exports of anything in order to punish, uh, punish you know, the sanctioning countries by with high prices. It's just the opposite. In the long term, Russia will be seriously reduced to a raw material exporter who has to export no matter what the price is because they need the cash. They are now right. in a position where they have to export gas, where they have to export uh, oil. And moreover, you know, they increasingly have to send it to Asian countries or to China. And because they lost their, their hard currency, most of their hard currency reserves, they will also have to go to China and ask for currency swaps, which is to replace them at least in part. And what do you think the Chinese will do? They will say, thank you very much. And by the way, yeah, we could buy you some oil from you, but there will be a big discount in the market. And, so and the that's the long-term the reserves, the, the cut in reserves, I mean, is that sufficient? I mean, has Russia been put in that place where it's... Uh, it can't, it can't cut production. It doesn't have enough money. I mean, Nabulina has brought in all of these, these uh, uh, new regulations and limiting um, withdrawals to 10,000 bucks and grabbed 80% of dollars from those who are exporting. I mean, so is there already like a liquidity crisis? And, and do you think it's gonna get worse? The Americans are talking about interfering in, uh, in the gold market and sanctioning anybody who does business with Russia to try and cut them off from the, whatever it is, 132 billion they have in, in actually at home in the, in, the, in the vaults. It might get worse. And uh, instead of you know, so tackling these two things, it, uh, the energy sanctions sort of may still be coming after this financial sector sanctions, which we're having now. So let's, let's just have a quick look also what happened actually in the short term. So long term will be a depressing effect on oil prices, which is what most people don't understand today. But it will be the case because Russia will be forced to sell as much as they can. Mm. In the short term, when the sanctions regime came, nobody really understood what it was. And most traders didn't want to touch Russian uh, cargoes with a flagpole. It was difficult to get letters of credit. Correspondent banks had disappeared. You couldn't find insurance for Russian tankers. All these things combined to, by now, estimates are about 4 million barrels of Russian oil, which hasn't been bought because mm. people were sort of not touching it. It was also 
to some extent reaction to public opinion, right? Like you see all these Western companies leaving Russia and a little bit of that took place also in oil and gas markets, with particular in oil markets mm. where there are replacements elsewhere to be found. And as a result of that, Russian oil today trades at a discount of more than 20% to Brent or other oil sources. So there is really, this is important to understand, there's two effects of also what the US then did when they decided to to make a big announcement that they wouldn't import Russian oil. There's in the short term now, there's a general increase in prices because of the uncertainty, because now the total amount of oil available has been diminished by that what hasn't been bought from Russia, which is still in storage and floating around. And because of the uncertainty and because people wanted to have oil in storage, prices go up. That's good for Russia. At the same time, there is this huge discount for Russian oil because people want oil, but they don't want Russian oil. That's bad for Russia. So on balance, there hasn't been done, hasn't been, hasn't, not, not much has happened to what, they, what they're receiving. But in the longer term, as these adjustment processes get worked out and markets are very, very good at getting around these kind of changes in regulatory regimes, there will be a depressing effect on the oil price. And what will happen next now is that uh, if nothing else politically changes, is that we see a market reaction to all these restrictions and insurance and transfer and capital questions, just similar to what happened with Iran. New brokerages will spring up and they will provide letters of credit. People will start traveling with suitcases full of cash to pay their right. bills. And new like insurance uh, forms will split up. Yeah, yeah, all this kind of. So markets will work that out. And then what will remain is the discount on the Russian crude rather than the uh, general increase in prices. So, so let me ask you then um, that Russia's been cut off from its cash, the central bank's deposits. And at the same time, oil spiked in price. It was uh, 140 bucks, uh, just below its all-time high on Monday. I think it's come back in the meantime to around 128. But doesn't that mean that the current account surplus is like going to boom? I mean, it's going to balloon. We had 120 billion current account surplus last year and was on track for 125. And despite all these problems, uh, like you say, if there's only the states who have imposed this embargo on a small amount of money, a small amount of oil, then isn't Russia actually going to be able to replace that central bank money that's been seized because of the huge current account? Probably not. I mean, this is an open, it's a very good question. It's the right question. And nobody really has the answer because we don't know how much they can squeeze their domestic economy. But it took since 2014, so that's eight years, to Mm. accumulate uh, these reserves of 620 uh, billion, parts of which were in renminbi, parts of which were in gold, parts of which were in Russia, part of which were outside. So the estimates now are very widely about how much has actually been frozen, but probably between half and two thirds of that. It took years and it was this amount which was deemed necessary to stabilize the exchange rate and to go shopping for essentials without having to crawl to China or somewhere else. Uh, With two thirds of that gone, the current account surplus will help and will avoid a total collapse, but will not be enough to stabilize the ruble uh, at any level, to allow your own people to travel, to allow your own people to be free, uh, converting your currency. This was all part of the plan, to show Mm. their own citizens that uh, yes, we can do this and the West can sanction us until they're blue in the face, but yeah, you can still fly to Turkey on holidays and you can still send, send some money from the US to your, uh, to your Babushka at home and, and these kind of things would continue. Without these reserves, they cannot continue and that's why you see these, these first measures of restricting transfers uh, and, uh, and of 
allowing people to withdraw dollars only when they pay a 30% brokerage fees and gimmicks like that. Yeah. Well, that it will yeah. also greatly restrain, restrict the central bank's core function, which is sort of keeping the ruble exchange rate and inflation rate stable. And this is going to be, be, be almost impossible because they can no longer go and, and tell the market with any credibility, we will interfere because the market knows the money isn't there. And uh, you can't interfere with Remimbi. Uh, and to third, third point, just to finish, the oh, third point is it increases their political vulnerability because it now really makes them dependent on the only sizable country which would give them hard currency swaps. So that's China. Mm. Yeah, now China is clearly going to be a huge winner and, and be able to step in and buy all these assets in Russia for like 10 cents on the dollar as a result of this. But, but sticking with uh, the well, current account, yeah, well, in one, as long as they pay in one. But no, I'm not sure it's going to be a big winner, but go ahead. Yeah. Sticking with the current account thing, because uh, I was talking to Elena um, Rybakova uh, from the IIF, and she said another one of the immediate results of uh, all of the uh, instability is that imports to Russia are going to collapse. So that will only improve the current account uh, surplus. So, you know, it could be if they continue to sell the same oil, because as you say, production is going to stay at whatever it is, 10.7 million barrels a day, um, that at what point will the ruble be supported by all this money coming in? So this, because uh, you could say that, you know, the trade regime has actually improved in some sense. Well, <laughs> we have no more tourism. That's have to that we have to be account. Most of the imports were already very much restrained, you know, after the Crimean operation. Mm. Look at it. it is, nobody can give you a precise number because it depends on how much the Russian population is willing to take. Mm. Now, look at it this way: the Russian economy grew by more than five percent uh, in the since two thousand or since nineteen ninety something until the invasion of Crimea until two thousand fourteen. Then they started accumulating these reserves, building Fortress Russia with the clear intent of having them handy for further uh, military activities and, for, and to counter further sanctions. And the growth rate of the Russian economy went down to on average 0.5% yeah. since 2014. This means that Russia, which is a middle or low income country, is growing much less than the European Union even, or not to mention China or the US. And in theory, poorer countries are supposed to go faster to catch up with the rich guys eventually. And in practice, the Russian population has seen the difference between them and the Europeans go up every single year, or every single day, in fact. Now, in order to make use of, a, even if it's a slightly better current account position, and I don't believe this because I don't believe that commodity prices will stay at the levels where they are currently. I think mm -hmm. the, the price decline for their discount the Russians have to live with will be so steep that it easily compensates for the few imports which are left 2014. That's just on the numbers. But mm. uh, even, even if they are now trying to accumulate reserves again, which they will try to do, the costs for the population will be enormous. So now we are talking about decline rates of 5, 6, 10%. Yeah. And the answer to your question depends on how far they push uh, the willingness to strangulate the economy just to accumulate a relatively modest amount of reserves and how much they fear that this would create some sort of social and political backlash of the population, and how much they are willing to go hand, head in hand uh, to China and ask for financial support. So where do, you think, come from where do you else. think the ruble is going to settle then? I mean, it's, it's what, 120 now. Uh, you should expect the ruble to be at uh, wherever it is right now, and then the inflation rate to go up. 
in, in the 20 or 30s and, uh, and the ruble decline uh, in analog to the inflation rate. Nice. If the Central Bank of Russia is allowed to do what they would like to do, then they would counter that not with a fixing the exchange rate, but with raising interest rates. That's what's going to kill the economy. That's and, what Ulina uh, has always done, and this is what she would like to do. But it's possible that now, for political reasons, you know, they are not allowed to do that. In well, which case, you would have higher inflation. There, there's there's a central bank meeting uh, next Friday, and given that she put through this emergency hike uh, to twenty percent, and the ruble just paused for a second and then continued to slide. I mean, obviously, she didn't hit it with a big enough hammer. So I don't know, there's talk already of like a 300 point raise in interest rates on Friday. Um, but then, as you say, that would just kill the economy further, which is going to take a massive hit as a result of this. Yeah. So they're truly cornered. This this freezing of the central bank reserves is the huge elephant in the room, which is still widely sort of underestimated. But that was the key of all the measures. And I'm not even sure the Americans knew in every detail what how big a hammer it really was. Uh, is it legal? I mean, as you said, I mean, these are all to do with contracts, all those, I mean, there's a lot, $90 billion was in the German central bank, it's not even commercial banks or even paper, it's on deposit with the Bundesbank. And, you know, they, you have these treaties and things, don't you? Can, can you? can you do that? Isn't there going to be some sort of repression from that? I was asking that question because, of course, Russia is not the only country. Most central banks have their currency reserves, if they are dollars, with the New York Fed. And if they are in euros, they have them with the ECB and the BIS in Basel. Um, and most central banks don't have renminbi or not, many, not much gold reserves. Gold is something you classically have at home. There is no clear-cut answer uh, because there is, no, there is apparently no international treaty protecting these assets. Mm. So what you have is national laws guaranteeing the independence of this national bank. And in theory, this would mean that the government cannot come and uh, confiscate what, in fact, is part of the New York Fed's balance sheet. But uh, the government can, of course, if it invokes emergency measures like these sanctions legislations inevitably do. And so I think it's probably legal within the country where it's happened, which is in this case the US and, uh, and, and Europe, Europe, European Monetary Union institutions. And uh, it is probably nothing which you can go anywhere to sue for because mm. there's no international regulation. In the long term, of course, it will cause central banks to leave yeah. some of their money somewhere else. I was about to ask, I mean, it doesn't it sort of massively undermine the confidence in the international financial system because, you know, the, the central bank, the CBR left its money in Germany because you can be, it seems that they thought that it was impossible that that, that couldn't happen, um, the faith in the international system. They diversified. The Russian central bank diversified big time. They have mm. a lot of cash also in Russia, really hard cash, but they have gold and they have remedies and they have currency swaps with China. So that's those are the four blocks. But they currently didn't, they certainly did not expect this, otherwise they would not have left their money there. Indeed. Which falls in line with the general observation that they didn't, they underestimated the whole venture on every front, right? Militarily, uh, they underestimated the, the, the resistance of the Ukrainians. They mm. didn't prepare their own logistics for a longer war. So it seems to be pretty obvious along the way that they were not calculating this, this being such a big deal as it was for the West. Mm. Um, coming back to an earlier point you made, you said um, the states have uh, banned Russian imports of oil and that that won't make much of a difference unless there's a sort of phalanx. 
Looking briefly at Europe, which is much more dependent on Russian oil, I mean, uh, and there is talk, I mean, Johnson, Boris Johnson was, was talking about unwinding the dependence. Um, everyone here is in a rush now to, to get rid of the dependence, particularly on gas, but isn't it gonna hit the, the, um, the oil imports? I mean, is there any chance of embargoes from, from Europe or is it just too deeply, too committed to buying Russian oil that there's nothing they can do about it? In the case of Europe, we would talk about much larger volumes, which would need to redirect it. Once again, the important thing to understand is a globally integrated market. So if all the buyers would say, we don't buy Russian oil, mm. then you know prices would explode because supply would be limited. But if only one or two biases are don't buy Russian oil, then it's all about redirecting these flows. In so the case of you, in the end, they buy in the end, it just comes through the back door instead of the front door. Yeah. So, so the idea would be that Europe, in theory, Europe would stop buying Russian oil. Russian oil would be sold, say, in, in Asia. And uh, Middle East would stop selling to Asia and, and start selling to Europe uh, again, in theory. In practice, the flows are so large in the case of Europe that you would need to build new ships, new pipelines, completely new supply distribution systems, completely new financing mechanisms. It's hilarious. That would in practice, if Europe were to do this, it would certainly drive prices through the roof and it would cause a global recession and Europe would have a lot of uh, driving free Sundays again. So that's <laughs> that's not something which can be done. Right. Um, what about but gas? Having, mm, can well, we say I, one more thing on oil, which please, is important please, also? Yeah. There are of course, you know, also mechanisms which could help in an emergency to keep prices low. It's not just that the US is relatively small and that markets will eventually adjust. We have at least three. So we have some oil producers who are under sanctions, but which have spare capacity. And there's spare capacity in oil, which is not the case for gas. And I mean, Iran and Venezuela. And so you may see, you know, the consequences with the Americans being more a little bit more easygoing on Iran and Venezuela, probably also the Europeans trying to get peace into Libya so to activate production from there. There is second, a large amount of spare capacity in the oil market, which is not in, in countries which are themselves subject to sanctions, it's in OPEC countries. I mean, this is another interesting sort of story. Think back to April, 2020, when the pandemic hit and oil prices fell through the roof, it turned even negative in the US. There was a big conference of OPEC countries and Russia and some other oil suppliers, uh, oil producers in the in the ex-Soviet space, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and others. And the whole group is referred to in oil circles as OPEC Plus. And they got essentially the green light from the biggest oil producer on the planet, from the US, from the Trump administration at the time, and from the G20 to, quote, stabilize oil markets right, in order to, to prevent prices from staying so low and, 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 and inventories becoming too full and all that. So they started cutting production. And since that point in time, since April 2020, the oil prices, instead of being stabilized, went only one way, which is up. Uh, even before the war in the Ukraine started, it was at 80 something. And in consequence, this was the result of these guys cutting production and then only very gradually as the global economy recovered, loosening up on their production cuts. But they still have sizable spare capacity there. And this is spare capacity is very, very concentrated in basically only three countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait. And so far, they have made no intent at all to release some of that to bring prices down, but they could. And mm -hmm. then there's a third big source. We can discuss each of them separately, but the third big source uh, from which oil could be brought to the market immediately is the Global Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 
And that's something which is under the control of the US and of European countries. And the total amount of that strategic petroleum reserve only in the US and Europe is 1.5 billion barrels. So that means they could release a million barrel every day for 1500 days, or they could replace the entire Russian oil exports for more than half a year. Right? Right. These are mechanisms on which, on which people can draw. And that's also one of the reasons why I don't imagine that uh, Russia would cut its oil export. Maybe this, let's put it this way, it would be irrational for Russia to you know, threaten this. And it would be irrational for Europe to try to wean itself off Russian oil because the distortions would be too large. Mm. But even in extreme situations like that, it's not yet the end of the story. There are some places you can go to to get more oil. To get more. Um, I'm, there's some interesting questions in the chat. And I say to everyone who's listening uh, on Zoom, if you have a question, please, you can put it into the chat. Um, from Georgi uh, Ryakov. And he's saying, and this is a good question, how sustainable is the current level of Russian oil production if it's cut off from the technology and it has been cut off from the technology? So isn't it going to start to fall at some point? Yes, uh, but this is not the most dramatic effect. It is going to be stable for a while and then I would expect it to, to fall. But the current production, if Russia wants to and mobilize its domestic resources can be sustained more or less. But what certainly will happen is that a lot of high-tech projects, in particular production in the Arctic, but also mm. things like LNG terminals converting gas into liquefied natural gas, they will stall. They will become much. Uh, uh, they will won't materialize at all, or if they materialize, it will be really? much more expensive and takes much longer. I was longer. reading an analyst note about this, and they said that Novatek, uh, which is the big LNG producer in Russia, has developed its own technology and is now self-sufficient, and so um, tech sanctions on equipment needed for energy to Novatech uh, are not going to count for anything that it's actually able to do it itself now. I think that's a bit wishful thinking. They were still engaged in, uh, in cooperation with Western companies mm. and they may have, they may be capable of developing their own technology for everything. So I mean, Russia is very well educated, smart people, but doing that separately in one country, which the world has already implemented long time ago and is constantly improving upon Starting all of that from scratch is vastly less efficient and more expensive than mm. just you know cooperating. That was the reason for the cooperation in the first place. And what about um, the, the the Western companies that pulled out, like BP, Exxon, and what have you? I mean, does that change the? Well, do they cut themselves off from from access to crude now? Isn't that going to massively hurt their business? And they said that they're going to sell their stake. I mean, BP's got whatever it is, nineteen percent in Rosneft. Can they do that? I mean, it's, the Chinese are probably the only buyers, aren't they? Or maybe the Arabs. And they're going to get it for a massive discount if it goes at all, is it not? It becomes a, a political question. So commercially, you're right. It's a big hit. BP has announced that they will write off 25 billion. Mm. Still less than they did for the Mexican oil spill. <laughs> mm. The oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. But uh, Exxon Shell a little less, but it's a hit. Uh, and whether this will actually be sold to anyone or whether Russia will just move and nationalize it is an open question. Mm. Uh, if it will not be nationalized, then it might be sold for a nickel and a dime to Rosneft or to, to other companies in Russia. I don't think Russia would voluntarily sell it on the cheap to China, but they may have to. Yeah, because I mean, when they, um, I think it was in 2016, they were missing two trillion and the, the Qataris stepped in and basically, well, 
privatized the state, but it was actually a loan, wasn't it? I mean, is there going to be help yeah. from those friends? I mean, the Middle East, I mean, in all of this or the Middle East? Because I saw well, that Saudi the... abstains in the general assembly vote at the UN. They, they um, no, they voted for no. the motion to condemn. No. They condemned they, they... Russia. I mean, they voted for that. So in that sense, they, they haven't backed Russia here. I mean, do you think that they're just going to stay out of this fight? completely and not do what they've done before, which is bail Russia out? No, I don't think so. They, they have first voted against and then supported Russia, and it wasn't Saudi Arabia, but the UAE. But what, it happened here, what happens here is they're sitting on the fence, in particular in Saudis, uh, because of course, you know, for them, they like current oil prices. They don't think it will cause a global recession. They're probably right. We should discuss that too. Um, and. Uh, this construct of cooperation with Russia and OPEC plus was enormously beneficial for them. It was very, very successful in bringing oil prices on a steady march up, mm. even though the, the world has, as we discussed, more than enough oil. Now, having said all of that, there's also some animosity of a political nature or even of a personal nature, because the Saudis, uh, they don't like the fact that Biden hasn't come and visit them. They got along, by and large, much better with Trump than with the Biden administration. And they hold it against the Biden administration that they try to uh, rearrange the Iran, revive the Iran nuclear deal. Right? Mm. And so there's animosities there. But when push comes to shove, the prices go too high. If the Americans really lean on them, then they will deliver. They always have because they know who is their protective shield. Mm. But uh, on the, having said all that, they also have a lot of investments in Russia, the UAE in particular. There is uh, a lot of incentives now. I bet you there's, there's a lot of Russians now traveling to Dubai. Yeah. Uh, and, and so they, they like to play it a little bit uh, both ways. And I think the fact that the UAE has just been put on this gray list for uh, countries under suspicion of being global tax dodgers was a little sort of warning shot of not to overdo it and not to bust these sanctions too broadly. So in the nice. end of the day, they will create some, some uh, interesting waiting time, but at the end of the day, they will fall into line, I'm pretty safe, safe to yeah. say. Yeah, David, um, correct me, the UEA abstained. Um, so I don't know, they, they, they've been supportive of Russia up until now, but it does seem that it's gone too far. Um, the, the reaction, you know, all the um, people like BP pulling out, because I know talking to BP before that it's a complete cash cow for them, and uh, they just tolerated or endured is a better word the uh, the poor relations they had and those crazy board meetings where dudley had things thrown at his head by the other board members um, but for them to go i mean that that's a it's a major break isn't it i mean extending that idea i mean to what extent because the people i talked to and, and sort of long-standing russian people like myself we're, we're all in shock because the, the there's a fundamental difference and it was described to me as that in previous crises you could already expect Russia to bounce back because fundamentally the economy remained a capitalist economy, a market economy with open current account, uh, easy to trade. And so the optimistic money would come back eventually and the whole thing would recover. And what's changed this time is the nature of the economy is now different. It's now a closed economy, a hermit economy. And moreover, Putin and all these regulations they're putting through, they're undoing a lot of the capitalist thing. They're going to force big Russian companies that uh, who are not sanctioned to do business with sanctioned companies, which means the whole economy will get infected because, you know, through secondary sanctions, it means you can't do any international business, even though you're not on the list because you have done business. Do, do, I mean, and doesn't this condemn Russia to stagnation 
feel like ever it's never you made the point earlier it's it's already falling behind the rest of the world but now it's going to fall even further behind and so it ends up like the economist called it as a giant petrol pump as an economy and that's it yeah the i mean you shouldn't jump to another extreme now because i think there's equally many people out there maybe not long long hands in russia uh, who think still that if peace would be to introduced tomorrow, everything eventually would bounce back to normal. So the question is how long the current sort of policy from Russia's side continues. And I could see that. I could see that a compromise being negotiated, peace breaking out, and then you would see the first companies coming back and the carrot of high prices will be waived. But the answer to that question ultimately lies in Russia. And will there be enough pressure for somebody to saying this guy uh, you know, has hurt us all enough now and to effectively change the situation is probably unlikely. But the only thing we really know about this is it's impossible to predict from the outside. You know? But the answer yeah. really lies in Russia. If you are right, and I tend to agree that if this becomes a frozen situation one way or another and continues for a long time, Russia, it's sad, you know, Russia will be a true pariah state, really going head in hand you know, to the Chinese and others and trying to sell, to sell raw materials. You know, all the things mm. they have developed, all the things they stand for, all, even the cultures will all be off limits for the rest of the world. You know, and, just, mm. uh, and the rest of the world will not go into a recession because of that. And I think it's extremely unlikely. Oil prices will not explode for this. They will be even in a position like it's already starting of picking, you know, this raw material, this raw material, where there is alternative supply somewhere else and where Russia can be boxed in further and further and further. So they have no, very that... little to, they will lose big time the Russian population. Yes, they already are. I mean, basically staff... everything which was there since 98, you know, that country, Everything which has been built up in that period yeah. will go down the tubes within a short time. Yeah, no, I think that my, my Russian staff, uh, we, we have several employees in Moscow and um, our head of business, she was in tears and she's told her children, you leave, there's no future here for you. That, you know, I'm okay, I get paid in dollars, but go because uh, you can't have a secure future, a normal life, which is- Hensinky, the arriving trains are full. People are leaving. Yeah. No, Nobody we writes about it, but they're refugees from Russia as well. Yeah, yeah, no, we have here in Berlin too. And uh, actually they're welcomed. And I was at the big demonstration in Berlin, 100, 200,000 people. And uh, there was lots of Russians there saying, you know, sorry, this is not our doing. And Ukrainians coming up and shaking their hands and thank you for your support. We understand Russian people mm. are not on side with this at all. It's purely Putin. As to the possibility of a palace coup, I agree. I think Putin's been too careful to cultivate the FSB over these years and that um, they're going to stick with him. And then you end up with the similar situation that you have in, in Belarus, where the security forces are backing Lukashenko. The entire country hates his guts, but they're unable to oust him because of that support. Um, and so he's just going to sit there forever and you could end up with Putin in, in a similar way. Um, Same in Kazakhstan. Yes, yes. Where people indeed. are nervous of being sanctioned next. Yes. Um, you mentioned global recession. Um, th this has been bandied around, and you're saying you don't think it's likely. But, uh, and also, the second question, which I wanted to ask uh, before, was uh, Novak specifically said you're not going to like the sanctions we're about to impose, and we're talking that oil prices will go up to $300. But doesn't that mean that they're intending to do exactly that to cut production? You know, because, you know, the rounds of harsh sanctions. The, 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 so, that's one of their options, isn't it? 
so let's be careful now. What I was trying to say is, in the case of oil, it would be very irrational for Russia to do this because they would shoot themselves in the foot much more than the West for all these reasons, because they don't they need the money, because mm -hmm. there's alternatives available in, in terms of oil supply and so on and so forth. They would just create a massive discount for whatever they left to export. But as we all have learned the hard way, you know, that something is being irrational doesn't mean it's not being contemplated or being done. I don't believe they're so stupid, but they could try to do that. And then you have to uh, look at oil and gas markets separately and ask for the consequences. In gas markets, the only there's no spare capacity as in oil. The only part which they could sensibly cut would be the gas deliveries to Europe. Now, gas exactly. deliveries from Europe come from Western Siberia. Right? If they would cut that, the gas would be the gas would be stranded because it cannot be redirected to Asia because there is no pipelines yeah. going through Siberia to the east. So everything they cut is an immediate writing it off. On the European side, if gas would stop tomorrow, they would probably be able to scrape through this winter, but it would require to lowering the thermostat a little bit. It would require redirecting contracted energy targets, which are now going to Asia into Europe. So there's a combined global political effort to get uh, Asian countries to agree to that. They would have to replace the, gas, replace the gas with coal. And it would require switching on all the coal and nuclear power that Europe has. But even if they would scrape by through that winter and the weather would play along, they would have a problem next year because without Russian gas, it will be next to impossible to refill storage in exactly. time for the next winter. So that's the gas side. On the oil stop, side, stop, stop, stop on that point, because this is uh, I was just writing about this uh, exactly that the storage has gone down to tanks at 27 percent full and the heating season traditionally ends at the end of March. And so like we're, we're sort of through this crisis. But when you write about this, you should also mention that a huge part of the storage capacity actually sits in Ukraine and maybe gone. Yes, yes. No, I mean, that's exactly the piece I was writing, looking at the storage that's in Ukraine which is by far the largest, it's like 20% of, of Europe's um, storage is in Ukraine. And the um, invading forces at the moment is split into two clusters, one in the east, one in the west, the one in the west is safe. The one in the east is, is still in government controlled territory, but um, it could be taken very quickly. So not only would you cut off the 40 BCM of transit gas that still goes through Ukraine, you would also take out 20% of Europe's storage capacity, and then it starts to really struggle. But the um, Russians uh, said, uh, I forget who, I think it was Novak again, um, that they're about to come with counter sanctions. And I, I was just playing with the idea this morning that one of the options is to, the, the, the EU said they're gonna accelerate diversification away from Russian gas, but they're setting the date by 2030. It's gonna take that long to do it. However, if Putin cuts off the gas to Europe tomorrow, then as you say, we could get through this winter, through the end of the heating season, but it becomes impossible to fill the tanks for the winter coming, uh, the autumn this, this year. And then there's going to be a huge, massive energy crisis in Europe. No, not, so and, fast, and, no? not so fast. Not so fast. It becomes very difficult, but think of something like, Somebody wrote a paper on this and they called it the analog to the Berlin airlift, which mm -hmm. would be to redirect all this liquefied natural gas, which goes into Asia, uh, comes from Australia, from the US, from Qatar, redirected into Europe and uh, becomes a race against time. It will be very difficult. But you can't do that again. because if you did yes, that, you, you would put to some extent. 
Well, but Qatar said there's not enough, you know, 15 It's like a Berlin airlift, and it's a massive political decision of yeah. those countries exporting the gas and those countries currently contractually uh, entitled to receiving that as imports to say, no, we send it to uh, Berlin. So we wrote a little bit about this, and the um, the the gas that gets sent to Russia is equivalent um, from Russia to Europe is equivalent of a third of the global LNG output. So you'd have to take a third of the globe's LNG and send it to Europe. But by doing that, you cause energy crisis in Asia from all the markets you take it from. Because no. as you said, it's a young market. There's not enough LNG capacity available no. to completely re replace Russia's deliveries to Europe, no? In most of Asia, including China, China would get gas also from the, from the ex-Soviet Union, but in most of these Asian markets, it can be replaced with coal. It causes massive adjustment costs. It's not going to be pleasant. It causes a huge increase in environmental emissions and all of the rest of it, but mm -hmm. it's not impossible. You, you have to really think in dimensions like the Berlin airlift. This would be a massive yeah, yeah. redirection, but one third, why shouldn't be one third of energy go to Europe? There's no reason yeah. for that. The, the bottleneck is not that. The bottleneck is the, is the regasification capacity, which is underdeveloped that, in Europe. That also makes me think that Putin might do this because um, you're saying there's no global recession, but if you did do a Berlin airlift with LNG, you, the, the economic impact across the world would be enormous. I mean, it would hit Asia. They'd have to like turn their thermostats down, and um, the prices are already high. They would go out, become absolutely astronomical, wouldn't they? They would probably be again. This you have to think of this not as a commercial operation. It would never happen alone on commercial grounds. Mm. It would be unpayable indeed. You have to think of that as a political maneuver. It would basically. I mean, it's fifty-fifty whether it could be. I think it could be done actually, but uh, it's fifty-fifty at least, or maybe the answer even lower whether you get the political will and agreement to do this. But imagine. Imagine Russia cutting off the gas and the world getting together like that. Yeah. And in one giant move, preventing the worst for Europe. Then, I mean, everybody, right. really would, even in Russia, they would see, you know, this guy is just talk. So that leads neatly into uh, the next question. In so much as I've started writing about, we are at economic war with Russia because the size, the severity of the sanctions have been enormous. And von Leiden specifically said these sanctions are designed to degrade the Russian economy, to pull it down. And this is an act of economic war, surely. And it, what you're talking about with the LNG, that's war as well. I mean, that's wartime response. It was in that case a Cold War. Uh, the the airlift. I don't know if somebody cuts you off from a from a contracted input and you replace it with something else. Is that war? But you have to be you have to be a bit more allow the world for a bit more response also i'm calling to speaking to you from the us mm. and you switch on any channel everybody calls it economic war mm. everybody here this is crystal clear this is not a new discovery so the us and biden's people in particular use that term for since for a few days now in a, in a mm. very specific and targeted way yes this is an economic war and that's why they will continue to tighten the screws but I, I mentioned this partly because um it's part of the reason why i think um, putin could decide to cut Europe off from gas in the next two weeks, make the decision to do that. 
because of the damage it would inflict, it would be a way of Russia. Because this isn't the first, isn't this the first time that, that the US is, and the West has sanctioned a country which is actually in a, in a position to retaliate? That actually has some powerful weapons that can do real damage to our economies. I mean, global inflation is already going shooting up, and that's already going to hurt indirectly everybody. And Europe directly, because of the energy crisis you could cause if you shut off gas straight away. Why would you do this with gas and not with oil? Because uh, Europe has no way of replacing the gas. It does have a way of replacing the oil because you can just, you know, get more ships to come. But if you turn the no, gas no, you can't tomorrow, replace the oil. You cannot do that immediately. The oil is oil prices when they go high enough. That would be a potent global weapon. Mm. Gas cutting off from Europe would be a regional maneuver which can be counterbalanced. Mm. So. I, again, you know, I can only tell you what makes economic sense and what not. That wouldn't make economic sense for Russia, but as we have seen, it may still happen for political reasons, for reasons of revenge. And so I agree, they may cut off the gas, but they may even be irrational enough to try to do something with oil. We haven't talked about that yet, but this is also interesting. People uh, use the wrong comparison when they think about oil prices, because we are all seeing this in the newspapers day in, day out. People look at today's oil price and compare it throughout history. They say, okay, the oil is now $130 and the highest we ever had was in 2847. But you cannot make this comparison because what matters is the real oil price. So you have to take into account of changes of inflation in the meantime mm -hmm. and of changes in the efficiency in which we use oil. That's one of the things I'm, I was working on. So year after year to produce the same global GDP, you need 2 million barrels less oil. This is just mm. because we've become more efficient in driving and in producing plastics and, and all the things we do with oil. So if you make adjustments for these two things, then current prices are actually not exorbitant or shocking from mm. an economic perspective. The highest price we ever had, 147 in nominal terms in 2008, in today's terms would be above 200. This period of three years, 2011 to 2013, when we had very stable, extremely high oil prices, on average around $111 or so, would mm -hmm. translate from today's perspective into $150. Didn't mm -hmm. cause a recession. So in order to cause a global recession through oil prices, they would have to, yeah, they would have to cut uh, to some substantial extent and to avoid this being counterbalanced by higher production from OPEC, uh, and uh, by releases from the SPR. So it would be a massive, massive cut required, I think, and uh, I can't see them doing that. Uh, I think we should consider it because um, we've had to recalibrate our understanding of Putin in so much as no one thought he was going to go over the border. Like I said, in the, when we were talking before this started, that everyone was surprised at the extremity of that measure and the speed it's happened. And I've also argued because of the political problems at home that we already mentioned that Putin actually needs this crisis to finish quickly because I also agree with you and he probably calculates that if we stop right now then there's a good chance we'll go back to well, normal I mean obviously a lot of damage has been done but certainly um, it won't be as bad as if the Ukrainian war drags out six nine months a year whatever it is um, he, he, and he's going to have increasing problems from protests at home if he does that so that's why he's tendency is going to be or argues for him doing the most extreme things possible because he's trying to put pressure in order to get a resolution whatever it is his goal i personally think he wants a security deal 
but it means this things is... like cutting oil production, cutting off Europe from gas. These things are now, you know, possible in a way that they weren't two weeks ago. And this would, I mean, what I don't understand on the argument is, I, I agree with you, it may happen. I agree with you, we all underestimated, uh, overestimated rationality on the Russian side mm. and all of this. But this would just be a continuation of irrational policies. So I think I agree that he wants to end too quickly. I think we see the contours of that. We will have, we will have a Ukraine without Ugansk and Donetsk. We will have mm. a Ukraine which is neutral and maybe not demilitarized, but certain to, subject to certain military restrictions and which world safety is guaranteed for a number of years by uh, by western countries so that shapes up very will come very slowly but if putin now goes and cancels cancels gas exports to europe and or cancels oil exports to the world how do you think the world will react will that really speed up an end to the war and a return to normality it will just make the mess much bigger and makes and shifts normality further to the horizon like i say so, i think putin sees it the, the sanctions as an act of war. I think he's at war in his mind with the West, and which is why he's doing these unconscionable things like marching into. I and mean, all I'm arguing here is, is that we should be prepared for extreme reactions that are not rational, depending on what the actual mindset of Putin is. We should be prepared, but I would still like to understand what the logic would be of doing this, or how this should accelerate the end of it in, his own, in the mind of anyone in the Russian government. Because he's, he's trying to force his, um, look, if you take as an assumption his goal is to get a security deal to get the West to also agree to a security deal involving Ukraine, taking out NATO and what have you, where the West has been um, refusing to do it, despite the fact there's no intention of, of allowing Ukraine to join. It's the crazy bit of this story is actually he's already got what he wants. I mean, he just wants it on a piece of paper. But then if you hit as hard as you can, if you start costing, you know, my neighbors and they have suddenly to pay a 2000 euro energy bill in the winter, that puts political pressure on the government here in Berlin. That's the way of doing it. It's an extreme and maybe irrational way of doing it. But if he considers himself to already be at war, then I don't think he's going to rule out doing things like that. In fact, I think the chances of it actually gone up quite a lot. He's oh. going to limit commodities in some way in the next two weeks, they've already said. No, you wouldn't do this. You would do this for revenge, but you wouldn't do it as a calculatory move to end the war quickly because it was so obvious that it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so as an act of revenge and as an act of war, and a, you know, when you push, as the Arabs say, you put a push a cat long enough into the corner, she will jump at you, no matter how big you are. That yeah. is possible. But as a rationally, and I still assume that in all this madness, they are still calculating mm -hmm. uh, a calculated act. I don't see that coming. Yes. Look, Christopher, um, we've pretty much run out of time. Um, yeah, we're just seeing if there's any last questions. But um, what's your prognosis? Do you think this could be over quickly or is it just totally unpredictable now? I think it will meander into this kind of frozen conflict for a while and then there will be, in the end, either a legal or a de facto agreement which neutralizes and demilitarizes to a large extent Ukraine, which leaves some eastern parts controlled by Russia, and which then enables the world to go quiet again. Whether he then moves on to, you know, to the Eastern Sea or not, is, uh, to the next to Moldova or Transnistria, is, is, or to northern Kazakhstan, is a different question. Yeah. For the world, I am not so worried. I don't think that current oil prices will cause a recession. 
I think that the second influence oil has on the economy is through inflation, right? Your rising oil prices makes everything more expensive. I mean, we, we need 70 liters to produce $1,000 worth of global GDP still. You know? So it's really mm. an important commodity. You know? So it's an enormous mm. amount of stuff and it suddenly becomes more expensive. But when oil prices go up, they're inflationary. When they stall or go down, they're deflationary. That's the reason to get rid of this volatility why central banks like to calculate inflation without oil and food prices. Mm. And so I don't, I think that rather the effect now is to support the bias the Fed has anyway. They don't like to raise interest rates. So the interest rate increases, which are there because of inflation, may be a bit more moderate at current and in these times of war to help Europe and help the US economy. I think the biggest winner of all of this clearly emerges is the US, both in terms of sort of as a morally mm. accepted leader, the only one. Even the reserve currency issue, you know, there's no competition. Would you put your money into a MIMBY? No. <laughs> mm. um, and, uh, but clearly also in economic terms. And the biggest loser is the Russian population. They're really being driven against the war now. Again, and again. I think that Russians. the, yeah, and the biggest loser is the Russian population, but also uh, the emerging markets are big losers because for two reasons, the oil intensity is much higher in countries which are still industrializing. So they need more oil per unit of GDP than countries which are rich and already based on service economy. So higher oil prices hit them harder. And secondly, what we didn't discuss is that, of course, grain prices have escalated by much more than oil prices yes. because, uh, and, and that puts countries immediately at risk for bread riots. You, know, you look at Tunisia, you look at Egypt, you look at Pakistan, yeah. you look probably even Bangladesh. These are places which have already macroeconomic problems, which are on yeah. the verge of having no IMF agreement or losing it and bitumen prices are subsidized and become, and a doubling of bread prices would be a disaster. We um, we reported this morning, there were protests in uh, Tirana in Albania yesterday because of the rapid acceleration of prices uh, that the, the people are like, they can't afford to live. And a lot of these countries are in the same boats. So the same in, in Hungary, they've got 15, year high uh, inflation, which is being driven up by the food prices. And it's already at a level it was when the Arab Spring started. And Egypt is also, they've got four months of grain left and they had two tenders in the last week and couldn't mm. get any grain. Uh, they're in serious trouble trying to find it from somewhere else. Yeah. Look, Christoph, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to sit and talk about all of this. It's a very confusing situation and kind of scary, um, but it was a great pleasure to talk to you again. No, thanks for the invitation. So let's do it. Let's do it more often. We will. <laughs> I think we'll have to do so it. Fast. Yeah. No, I think we'll have <laughs> to do it again in a week's time. And things are going so quickly. So I'm game. I'm going <laughs> to be back in Abu Dhabi then. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. You didn't make fun of my beard this time, so I'm pleased. <laughs> and uh, for all of those out there listening, uh, thank you very much for spending the time to um, listen into what we had to say. The situation is very confused. Um, I'd like to plug Bernie. Um, that we um, have, uh, we're following the story very closely on the website. You can also follow on Twitter at BNE IntelliNews. And um, we do a daily email digest called Editor's Picks. If you go to this page, and for those in uh, listening on Twitter, if you go to IntelliNews.com slash welcome, then you'll find a selection of things that we do that you can uh, do to follow this story. Editor's Picks is a daily digest at the moment. It's totally dedicated to our regional wide coverage of this crisis. Um, we're also offering for even more information for those of you who are professional investors or in the game somehow, 
uh, a two-week trial to our pro service where we dig into the details of the macroeconomics, business, finance uh, in much greater depth than the general articles we have on the site. And um, this talk will be recorded. You can find it on our YouTube channel, which again at telenews.com slash welcome, there's the link. So once again, thank you very much. I am sure we'll be talking again soon. Take care.